Hey, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the Tree of Life Church podcast. It's our prayer that these messages help connect you to the life, love, and power of Jesus. Why don't we go ahead and open up our Bibles and I'll jump into the Word. Let me pray real quick. Lord, I just thank you for this morning, Lord. I thank you for this time. I pray, Father, that you would just use your word to speak to us, Father. I pray that I would diminish, Lord, and that you would go flow through me, Lord. And everything that you want to be said, Father, would be said, Lord. And the things that are not of you, Father, that those things would be pushed aside. We give you honor and we give you glory. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said? Amen. Awesome. So the, the title of my message is Tomorrow. And um, I, I, if you have a Bible, open it up to Acts 16, 25 through 31. Some of you may know this, this portion of Scripture. This is, this is a powerful portion of Scripture. This is one of those portions of Scripture that when you read or when I read, like, it just, it gets inside of me. Like, it's one of those that you just can't read this Scripture and not feel motivated at the end of reading this Scripture. And this is actually the portion of Scripture where Paul and Silas have been jailed, right? They've been jailed. And if, if we could just go ahead and read it, and it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. Isn't that powerful? Isn't that a powerful portion of scripture? Like how many of you have read that and you've just been, man, I'm motivated. Lord, take off the chains, open the doors, let me run out of prison, right? You know, that's just such a, a, a portion of scripture that, that gets in us. You know, but, but when I preach, I, I often like to look at things from a different angle. You know, I, I like to ask a lot of questions. You know, and sometimes I, I, I know that I, I kind of, I hope I don't, but I feel like maybe I can annoy God because I'm asking him too many questions. You know, you ever feel like that? Like you're like, God, why do you do that? Like, why does that look like that? Why does that? And, and when I read this, I've read this multiple times. You know what, what always strikes me and what always kind of hits me besides just the, the, the cheering part and the amazing part was how, how is it that the jailer didn't know that they were in the jail? Like, I, I think about that. Like, I think, why didn't he know that? Because the, the earthquake happened, and, and it woke him up, I guess. And, but how did he not know that? And so I, I think we have to take our own thought processes. Like, we read it, and the way I've read it, and maybe you're like me, I've read it multiple times, and I always imagine that the jailer is, like, sitting out front in front of the jail, dressed in his jailer wardrobe, whatever that looked like at that time, and, and was sitting down and probably asleep on his stool in the middle of the night, and then there's this earthquake that shook him and woke him up. But the reality is that that's probably not the way that it happened. What I mean by that is that if you look at jails in the time of Paul and Silas, they, they were often part of a property. And so I, I would think that what really happened is that he was probably asleep in bed with his family. And if you look at the very end, it says that you and your family would be saved. So it stands to reason that Paul and Silas somehow knew that his family was there. Right, that, that they were in the area. So I, I imagine, or reading this and kind of looking through it, I, I kind of think what really happened is there was a, a place where this jailer was asleep. 
maybe it was his house, maybe it's where his family was, that wasn't necessarily at the front of the prison. Right? So I think he's asleep and, and the earthquake comes and it wakes him up and he's got to get dressed. He's got to get out. And I don't know how long it took him to get to the front of the prison. I, I don't know. But maybe it, it took him 15 minutes. Maybe it took him 10 minutes. Maybe it took him 20 minutes. But, but the story makes a lot more sense to me when I put it in the context, because now if I'm thinking, well, he wasn't just sitting there at the front of the prison. Now I can understand if there's this earthquake and there's this trembling and he probably had to check on his family before he even walked out the door to go check on what's happening at the prison. Now it makes sense because time has gone by and it's obvious that there must, these people must have left. Right now, now the story kind of, I'm tracking, right? I'm going along with it. But then, but then I, that, that raises more issues in my head. Right? It brings up more thoughts because now I go, okay, wait, hold on. Hold on, God. Wait, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You know, just wait. So you're telling me that their chains fell off, the doors flung open, and there was like time where they could have walked out of the prison and they didn't? Okay, that messes with me. Because I'm not going to lie. Like, if I'm Paul with Silas, and I am in prison because I've been doing what I believe is the work of God. And the chains fall off and the door swings open. You better believe I'm not walking out of there. I'm running out of there. Like I'm leaving, Paul, I'm leaving Silas behind. Like he better keep up. I'm going. I'm out of there. And, but Paul doesn't do that. And Silas, the, both of them make the decision to stay. And, and that's, that, that boggles my mind. That makes me think, like, what is it that I don't see that Paul and Silas see? You know, what is it about what they're doing and who they are? And, and yes, you can forward, fast forward in the story and, you know, you can see the end. And we have the luxury of, of being able to look at it in hindsight. We have the luxury of looking at it after everything has happened. But I, I'm struggling with how does Paul, how do Paul and Silas in that moment know, uh, yes, this all happened, but. I'm going to stay here. I'm going, to, I'm going to stay here. And not only that, somehow they convinced all the other prisoners to stay. And so that, that messes with me. And so I was praying this out and I was kind of going through this process of like, how do you, how do you reconcile this? And, you know, God took me back to Esther. How many of you guys know Esther? Woo, all right. Two more than first service. <laughs> um, you know, Esther's a great story. If, if you haven't read Esther, I encourage you to go read it, especially after we talk about it today. But Esther is an amazing story. You know, Esther is the story that truly is like a great example of how we should look at our walk in our life with Jesus. But the, one of the interesting things about Esther, just kind of backpedaling, Esther is one of the two books in the Bible that God has never explicitly mentioned. You know, and that's kind of interesting. It doesn't tie into the message, but that's kind of interesting that God has never explicitly mentioned. But let me paraphrase the story of Esther so that way we can dig into a couple of um, examples that Esther does that might help us in understanding Paul and Silas a little bit more. So if you remember Esther, Esther was actually her and her uncle Mordecai, right? They were taken from the Babel by the Babylonians. They were pulled out of their land and they were brought into Persian media. And they were actually, it was a couple of generations that they were living in this land as foreigners. And there was a lot of Jewish people. There was a lot of people of God that were pulled out and brought in as prisoners, but then they ended up living among them. And so there's kind of this place where they don't really have a lot of rights. They don't really have a lot of influence, but they're in this place. And, and the name of the king at this time was, and 
and if I pronounce it correct, incorrectly, forgive me, but Xerxes was the name of the king. And so he comes into power, and he actually has a wife named Vashti. And he's, this Xerxes guy, he's, I like him. Um, I like him. He's interesting. But it, it, one of the things about him is it opens up the book of Esther where he's actually having a 180-day festival. And, and the end of the festival is ca- capped off with seven days of banquets. This guy likes to party. <laughs> he likes to party and he likes to eat. <laughs> I relate to that. I like to eat. <laughs> he likes to throw parties. He likes, to, he likes to have celebrations. And so he's having this big celebration at the onset of Esther at the beginning of the book. And he calls for Vashti, his wife, and she doesn't come. She denies coming. She doesn't come before the king. And, and at that point in time, like, that, that confused him. He didn't know what to do. So he called all of his counselors, called them together and was like, what, what do we do? And so somebody said, you know what? Write an edict, write a law that she can never come before you again and give her role to somebody else. And so he does that. But one of the interesting things that, that the first scripture points out when, where I want to stop in this story in Esther 119, it says, therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree. That's that law. And let it be written in the laws of Persian media, which cannot be repealed. And so this stands out to me. And, and I want to just kind of, if, if I could, just put a pin in it. I've used that phrase up here before. Put a pin in this. This is a law that cannot be repealed. So whenever the king writes out a law, the law can never be reversed. The law can never be repealed. It can never be changed. So the king finds that this is a good um, suggestion. So he does it. But then he finds himself that he's lonely. He's like, I, I need a queen. And so they go on a search and they look for a queen and Esther is found. She doesn't tell anybody that she's a Jew. And Mordecai kind of helps her, gives her influence, lets her know. And, and soon enough she rises and she becomes the queen of, uh, uh, next to King Xerxes. She becomes his, his queen. And, you know, I, I, I love the story because you see that there's this person that really was in a foreign land and had no authority, had no uh, right, if you will. And, and she is elevated to this place where she's right next to the king. Right? In fact, because of her elevation, uh, there's, there's some thought that that also helped Mordecai to elevate. And not because it was knowledge, but simply because it was influence. And so Mordecai is at the gate and he's standing at the gate, and this is after Queen uh, Esther has taken her position and her role. And he overhears that there are people that are conspiring against the king. And that takes us to Esther 2.21. And it says, During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out, found out about it, about the plot, and told Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was in, investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. So the king's in the presence of them recording this. So the, Mordecai reported this, right? He reported this to Esther. Esther told the king, and then they found out that it was all true. And then this was recorded in the king's presence. And, you know, in my mind, right, and I think in all of our minds, we see that Mordecai did something good. He did something good without any maybe desire for repercussions or reward or anything of that nature, but what I find really interesting about Esther is that if you go to the very next verse, it's, it's chapter 3, verse 1. It starts out with, 
after these events, right? So say after. So after these events, King Xerxes, Xerxes honored Haman. Now, if you've read the story, you know that Haman is, Haman's a bad guy. Haman's a really bad guy. So this is where Haman enters the story. And Haman is actually bent. He's an individual that is bent on destroying the people of God. He's bent on actually, he wants Mordecai dead, but he doesn't just want Mordecai dead. He wants all of Mordecai's people dead. And I find this, this portion of scripture speaks to me. It, it kind of gets me in one of these places where it, it's just a little bit too real. Can I say that? It, it's a little bit too honest. Because when I read it and I look at it, it takes me back to so many situations in my life where I felt like I was doing what God wanted me to do. I felt like I was walking that out. I felt like I was doing my best and, and something happened. I got a great result or something transpired. But then... After that, I don't get anything. And in fact, the enemy seems to have gained ground. The enemy seems to have stepped forward. There, there seems to be somebody else that, that had it out for me that for some reason they're elevated. You know, has that ever happened to you? Like you feel like that's not fair, right? It's not fair. Why, why are you elevating Haman after Mordecai's sacrifice? Like, that's a question I ask God. Like, why, why are you giving him this place of stature when it should have been Mordecai? And I ask it because so many times in my life, I've done that. You know, I, I think about situations when I was younger, about 22 years ago, 21 years ago. You know, I was a store manager, and I remember that um, I covered a couple of different stores, like three stores, and, and I was just, you know, working on, on moving forward. I was, thought I was the best thing since sliced bread. Turned out I'm not. But, um, but you know, I, I, I doing all this work, and then my boss calls me one day, and he's like, hey, I'm transferring. And he was, he was moving to um, Birmingham. And so I was like, oh, praise God, I'm so glad for you. He had always wanted to go to Birmingham. And so it was a great thing. As soon as he hung up, I was like, I'm getting promoted. <laughs> like, I was like, because I worked really hard. Like I, and so, you know, I, I end up, my, the, his boss calls me, right? His boss calls me and is like, hey, you know, your boss is, is transferring. Um, we need somebody to take over this area for uh, a temporary assignment until we can find the new district manager. And so I was like, yeah, absolutely. You're, you're telling me, I'm your guy, right? I'm your guy. I, I, I was like, this is my opportunity. This is my moment, right? And so I, I, I ended up being in that position for six months and I worked my butt off. You can ask my wife. I was doing everything I possibly could. In fact, they had a ranking system and we were in the bottom 10% when my boss left. By the time six months later uh, that, that I had a chance to really sit in front of my, my new boss, we were like number four in the company. And so I had moved the, the needle quite a bit. But, but my boss comes in and sits down with me. He's like, hey, I, I want to introduce you to your new boss, your new DM. <laughs> and I was crushed. I was like, hold on. What, what do you mean? Like, and and I, I, I handled it with grace. I, I, well, I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> I, was, I was a believer, so I did not say anything negative. I, I was hurt. No doubt I was hurt. And I remember I, I, I left there and I was, that hurt turned into anger. It turned, and I, I was so angry. I was so angry. In fact, it, it lasted a couple of days and my wife was the one that had to pull me aside and she goes, um, you know, you either need to quit, get over it, or do something about this because you angry just doesn't work. <laughs> and and I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an angry person. Like I don't, I don't deal well with anger. 
You know, and so I was like, you know what? You're right. You're right. And so I just gave it to God. Said, you know what? I'm just going to do my best. I'm just going to. And so I, I look at this story, right, where Mordecai is serving and, and yet Haman is being elevated. And, and it just reminds me of these times in my life where I thought I was doing what I was supposed to do. But the evidence in front of me seems like that's not where I'm supposed to be. Right? And, and I'm sure that you can feel that way. Like maybe you're giving, right? You're, and you're sacrificing, but then all of a sudden they cut back at, at work, right? Or, or maybe you're, you're serving and then all of a sudden, you know what? There, something happens with your family and you feel like you should have invested that time here versus there or whatever it may be. Like there may be situations where you feel that way, where you just don't understand. And, and I've been in that so many times, so many times. But, but I, I will say that you know, God is, God is faithful, and, and he works it out in this book. I, I, for the sake of time, I'll kind of share with you, you know, with, with uh, Haman, what ends up happening is that, um, or rather with Mordecai, what ends up happening is Mordecai is faithful. He remains faithful, and late, years later, six years later, Haman is ready to kill Mordecai. He's ready to kill him. He's literally in the king's court about to ask the king for Haman's life. And you know what happened that night? The night before Haman walked in to kill Mordecai, the king was sleepless. And he said, you know what? Bring out the records and read them to me. And they brought out the records and they read, and they read them the story of Mordecai turning in the, the two people. And guess what happened is that the king goes, whatever, what, whatever happened with, with Mordecai? And they're like, nothing, no honor, nothing. And so the king says, well, who's in the court? Who's out there? Call him in. And so they call in Haman, who had risen to this place of, of prominence. He was this play, in this place where he was like the best thing. He was the next person right after the king. And the king goes, hey, who, who, what should we do for the person that the king would like to honor? And Haman was talking about himself. He's like, have him be on a robe, put on, uh, get him on a horse, pr prance him through the city, say, this is the wonderful person, you know, all these things. And so literally in that moment, Haman had been conspiring to kill Mordecai this entire time. And in a moment where it was needed, God brought back a remembrance. And all of a sudden he goes, okay, Haman, go do that for Mordecai. <laughs> Can you imagine Haman's face? Like, what? What in the world? Like, can I tell you that, you know, God drops deposits in your life because of your faithfulness, right? When you're faithful, you might not see it when you think you're supposed to see it, but it'll come back at a later. He doesn't ever forget you. He never forgets you. You know, I told you about the story where I, I didn't get the promotion that I thought. What I didn't tell you is that a year later, my company restructured and my boss and my boss's boss both lost their jobs. I didn't. And within a couple of months, I got promoted to the district manager position that I didn't have a year before. But it wouldn't have happened if I hadn't stayed faithful. I could have stayed angry. I could have stayed in this place of going, why God, why God, why God? But there was something that was planning that God was doing. I couldn't understand it. I was angry with God for a little bit. But he was still working. He was still doing something. And so that, that portion of the scripture, when I look at Esther, it, 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 I can understand it. I can see it. But it still kind of messes with me. And so I, you keep reading. And, and Haman, he, he had gotten with the king, right? He had gotten with the king. And he had gotten the king to write a law that said 
all of the people of God were to be destroyed, were to be annihilated. And he even offered to pay the king. And the king said, keep your money. Here's my ring. Write the law as you see fit. And so a law was written that actually was going to cause not just Mordecai, but even Esther and all of the Jewish people in all of that area to be killed and annihilated. They chose one day, one day on the calendar. And so this law was put into place and, and it was communicated to everywhere. And everywhere that it was communicated to, people were crying and wailing because there was this day that was now coming. And it was months in advance. It was going to come down the road. But it was this day where surely the people of God were going to be killed. And so Mordecai goes to Esther, who's the queen, and says, you got to do something about this. Like, you got to do something about this. And for some of you, you probably know and remember, like, this is where um, Mordecai tells her, she's like, well, I can't go before the king. And Mordecai tells her, for such a time as this, like, how, how are you not certain that God didn't put you in this place for this reason? Right? And so I, I love this because when I think about the whole story of Esther in this specific portion, this kind of, if I could say, contextualizes what Esther is about. It's about an example of really taking a moment and saying, am I where I'm at for a reason? Am I in this position because God has placed me here for a reason? Am I supposed to do something that God has ordained for me to do for a reason? Right? And so Esther, Esther finally says, okay, you know what? You're right. I'll do it. I'll go before the king and if I perish, I perish. So she's got this amazing faith that says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to represent the people of God. And, and so she goes before the king. And what was interesting about it is that at that point in time, in order to go before the king or people that went before the king, if the king did not want you to be in his presence at that time, it, was, it meant certain death. So when you went before the king and you weren't called, you had a 50-50 chance. Either you were going to die or he was going to say, Go, come forward, let's talk, right? But she put her life on the line and she goes before the king and he extends his scepter, which is a sign that says, I'm willing to talk to you. And so she comes up and he goes, what do you want up to half the kingdom? What do you want up to half the kingdom? And so I, I look at Esther and again, Esther puzzles me because instead of saying, my people are gonna die, save us, whatnot, what does she, what does she tell the king? Do you know what she tells him? It's in... Uh, if we go to it, it's in Esther 5.4. It says, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king together with Haman come today to a banquet I've prepared for him. So instead of telling the king, hey, save us, she's like, can we have a party? <laughs> I, I, I just find that puzzling. Right? I, I find that awkward. I, I don't understand why she did that. And, you know, part of me thinks, well, maybe she was afraid. Maybe there was some fear that rose up in her that maybe she didn't feel she could say it at that moment. I, I, I don't know. But I, I found that really puzzling because I think if I got a chance to speak to the king, and granted, it's from my point of view and my context, like the first things out of my mouth would be save me, change this, you know, change this law, whatever. It, I, I would be pleading with the king. But her first response is, Come to this banquet that I prepared. And not only that, bring Haman with you. Haman who represents her mortal enemy. Haman who represents the thorn in her side. Haman who represents all things wrong. Bring him with you. And so the king says, yes, go grab Haman. Let's go to this banquet. And so they go to the banquet. And then Esther does something that just puzzles me even more. Right? If you look at it, she's at the banquet. And you go forward to Esther 5.8. 
And so they're at the banquet and they're having this great time. And then the king says, uh, again, what would you want? And she goes, if the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come. What does it say after that? Tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. And so not only does she bring the king in for a banquet, but then at the banquet, she tells him, come to a banquet that I will prepare tomorrow. And so I I don't know. I mean, I've read this multiple times over and over. And this always just, it just puzzles me. Right. Like I, I and, and again, I can only see from what I see and I only know what's been written, but it still doesn't make sense to me. Like, why did you why did you invite him to a banquet? And then why did you invite him to another banquet? Like, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. And and I, I was praying this out and studying this out. And, you know, a couple of things did pop up. Right. So I told you may, maybe putting herself myself in her shoes. Maybe she was fearful. Maybe she was looking for the right moment. Maybe that never came. But but you know what struck me even more? It was two things that really popped out to me. The first one was. And I told you earlier, this king loves banquets. He he loves banquets. He loves these feasts. He loves this. And so it tells you in the scripture that. Queen Esther hadn't been in his presence for 30 days. And so she invites him to two banquets. I wonder if she was just trying to do a little bit of what the king loved. I wonder if she was trying to do something that she knew her king loved. And so I think about my situation and I think about the times that I've gotten before the king Right. And and by no means should I say that you shouldn't ask for what you need. You should always ask for. It. But I wonder if if we would spend a little bit of time doing what he loved and what we know he loves. Right. If we would spend a little bit of our or sacrifice a little bit of our resources to go, let, let me do what I know the king loves. Let me do what I know blesses him. Let me do what I know moves his heart. Let me do that. And not because God is a tit-for-tat God. He is not. But simply because he's after your heart. Right? He wants your heart. And so she does this. And then the second thing that I, that I saw in this, right? Not only does she do what he loves. Not only does she focus a little bit of time in it. But I think she also understands Or maybe she was seeking a little bit more of his presence before she went after his power. Right? Maybe she was seeking the presence of God before she actually was looking for the power of God. And and that, that struck me with a lot of conviction because I think about so many times in my prayer life that I'm seeking the power of God. I'm going after the power of what he will do. I'm going after the power of who he is because I want results. I want this. But the reality is that he's looking for your presence. He wants you to invite him in. He wants to be close to you. And so Esther understood this. Esther understood this, but, but, and she does get her way. She, after the second one, she tells him, and the king is enraged, tells him that Haman had planned this, and the king has Haman killed, hung on the gallows. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it. Because even though Haman was killed, the, the antagonist in this story and uh, the, the enemy, if you will, even though he was killed, there was still this edict that existed that on this day, 
people would end up killing the Jews. And so Esther goes to her king and he says, what would you have? And she's like, wipe out this edict. Well, this law cannot be revoked. This law cannot be changed because it's in the king's hand and it's with his ring. And so what does he do? What does the king do? The king says, even though it cannot be revoked here, I give you my ring and you, you and Mordecai write a law that seems fit to you. And so they write a law and their law is that on this day, all Jews can defend themselves. On this day, all Jews can take up arms against those that would kill them. And I, I, I think, wow, that's awesome. But I look at it and I'm like, why didn't he just change the law? Why didn't, if, if he was really king, why didn't he just wipe out that law? Right? Why, why didn't he do that? He didn't. He didn't change it. He couldn't. He couldn't change it. And not because he couldn't, but because he wouldn't because of who he was. But he still had the ability to write a law that would save all of the Jewish people. He still gave her the ability to do that and gave her his ring, gave him his ring, actually, Mordecai. And, and so that, that struck with me, and, and I look at that and I go, okay, that's, that's awesome, but, you know, it, it just, it still seems awkward. And you fast forward in the story, and so they go to the actual day. The actual day that this is, had been conscribed by, um, by Haman originally for the Jews to be terminated. And in the middle of the day, they get a report back. The king and queen get a report back, and all the Jews are winning. They're winning. They're, they're, they're killing their enemies, all the people that would take up arms. They're, they're winning. And so the king looks to the queen, Esther, and says, what would you have? What would you, what can I give you? Like, I, I, you got a chance to write this law the way that you saw fit. Now, now what can I give you? And you, you know what struck me so much is that when given the opportunity in the middle of the day, what does Queen Esther ask for? She asked for another day like today. Another day like today. You know, that, that, that messed with me because if you go back a couple of months, this was a day of dread. This was a day that was supposed to be the ruin of the Jewish people. This was a day that was supposed to be the downfall of God's people. And yet, in that moment, in that day, in that day, she was asking for another. Why was she asking for another? She was asking for another because she had the king's ring. She had the king's ring. That meant that she had the king's power. And when she had the king's ring, that also meant that she had the king's word. And can I tell you that when you have the king's ring and you have the king's word, even in a day of infamy, even in a day that you should have lost your life, even in a day that you should have been at the bottom of the pole, it, his word and his power change everything. They change everything, you know. And so I, I look at that and, and I think about the Paul and Silas story, right? I think about that, that whole situation. And, and now it makes a little bit more sense, right? Because it says about midnight, right? About midnight, which is the following day, right? This is the next day. This is after one day of them being shackled and in prison. And about midnight on the next day, they're freed, but they stay. So I think in some reason, Paul and Silas were like, give me a little bit more time in here, Lord. Give me a little bit more, more time in this place. 
And, and not because we couldn't walk out, not because the chains aren't free, but because there are people here that need you. There are people here that need your presence and we have the responsibility of carrying your presence. If Paul and Silas had walked out those doors, the jailer's life would have never been saved. His family's life would have never been saved and people would have never changed if they had chosen to walk out. And so I I think about our lives. Our lives are expected. We are expected to walk among the dead. We are expected to walk among the people that are in bondage. We are expected to be around where the need is. We are expected to do that, but not to be in bondage, but to bring freedom to those in bondage. We are expected to do that. You are expected to do that. You do that in this world. When you walk among those that that are still in the darkness, yes, we are set apart, but we don't have to be apart, right? We're set apart, but we don't have to be separate from We need to come in and walk among them. Otherwise, people would never, they'd never experience God. They'd never experience him. And so I challenge you to think, for you to think about whether or not where you're at right now, there's a purpose. Right? God has you where you're at. And and I know, I know I've been in your shoes where you're crying out to God and saying, Lord, please change this. Lord, get me out of here. Lord, fix this. Lord, and I'm, and I know, and, and those are good prayers. But if it's not changing the way that you want to, maybe you should say, Lord, who do I need to impact next to me? Right? Maybe it's not about getting out of my job. Maybe it's about getting the person saved next to me. Maybe it's not about getting out of this situation. Maybe it's about being an example to other people that are in this situation. Because God has something for you. And so I, I, I love that and, you know, and that, that encouraged me and, and I felt so like, oh, but I still went back to, if I could circle back around because I kind of bla- just kind of went over it a little bit. You know, that, that whole portion of uh, he, he couldn't change his law. You know, he didn't change his law. The, the law of the Persians and the Medians was irrevocable when, when signed by the king and used by his ring. And, and I tell you that that, that, that probably, if, if I could sum it up in Esther, that's, that was the thing that really was the hardest thing to process for me. And, and the reason it was the hardest thing to process because it spoke a little bit too much about my desire for God to wipe out evil, right, if he's good, right? I, I, I have trouble sometimes reconciling, like, I, I know my God is good. I know my God is real. I know my God is all-powerful, but, but how do I reconcile that there's evil in the world, and there are things that are happening to people that shouldn't happen to them, and there's all of these things that, that I wrestle with, and so this moment I look at, it and I see that he's got this ring, and he's got the word, and why couldn't the king of Persia media just turn it around? Why couldn't he do that? Because that's what sometimes what I want my God to do. I want him to come out and just wipe out the evil, wipe out the things that are, that are not of him. I, that's what I want. And I don't like that, that instead what he did is he gave his ring and his word to Esther and to Mordecai. I don't like that he gave it to them because that required action of Esther and Mordecai. They had to do something. I don't like that because I want my God to do it. I don't want to have to do it. I don't want to have to be the one to, to write the edict. I, don't wanna, I want him to wipe it out. I want to be able to pray and I want this this God that's going to be at my beck and call. That's not who God is. That's not who he is. 
You know, and, and I, I, being transparent with you, these are prayers that I prayed to him. Like, why won't you do this? Why won't you move? Why won't you wipe out this evil? And, and so I, I, I sit there and I go, okay, how do I reconcile this? You know, there's, a, there's many a times that God has spoken to me and he said, you know, son, do you want a God that doesn't uphold his word? Do, do you want a God that changes? Like, do you, do you want a God that says one thing and then turns around and does something else? Is that what you want? Like, do you want a God that you can completely understand? I'm like, no, I don't. I don't. Lord, I, I don't. And I'm sorry. <laughs> when God asks you those things, you're like, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me. <laughs> but, but he didn't stop there. He didn't stop there. He said, you know, you, you want a God that, that defeated the evil. Well, son, I did. I did. And not only that, not only did I defeat the evil, but the way I defeated the evil was I sent my son. I walked among you like I'm asking you to walk among them. I walked among you. I carried my cross among you like I'm asking you to carry your cross among them. I, I did what I'm asking you to do. I, was, I loved you enough that I pulled you out of the miry pit. I went into the place where bondage was. I wasn't bound, but I went in there and I pulled you out. I pulled you out. And so if that's the God you want, that's the God he is. If that's the God you need, that's the God he is. The God that loves you. The God that will walk alongside you. And guess what? He still hasn't left you. He's still walking alongside you. So wherever you're at, whatever the darkness may feel around you, he's still in your midst. He's still with you if you would just call out to him. If you would just recognize that the God of all came to this earth, gave his life for you. He gave it for you. Thanks again for joining us this week. We pray that this message encouraged and inspired you. If you want to find out how you can be a part of Tree of Life, just go to our website, treeoflifechurch.org. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. 